Do you stay standing for the reading of the Holy Scriptures? I'm Mindy, and today we're reading in John 13, 31 through 35. This is out of the um, NIV. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will, only, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so, that you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Just... Just last week, or two weeks ago, we concluded a uh, four-week vision series for the year, and the second message of that series was a message on community. And to be honest, it's, it's, it's a message, a type of message I've given so many times. Uh, the vision of, for community, the importance of community, the blessings and challenges of community, you know, several times a year, try to, try to give an impassioned kind of community vision message, but I've come to realize um, I've never really tried to explore as a pastor with my congregation um, the real pragmatic how to do these lofty things. So in, so in this series, we're going to start now for, I think, eight weeks. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about specifically, especially after this first message, how to do this stuff through the lens of the so-called one another passages of the New Testament. Uh, if you take this Greek word, all alone, and a, a similar a synonym to it, um, there's about, depending on how you count out, 60, 61 commands in the New Testament about how Christians are supposed to live with one another. One another. And so we're going to kind of take those with an eye towards application, trying to figure out how to live out this vision. And today we start with the first and central command, the the, the the command to love one another actually makes up-ish about one-third of those 60 one-anothers. At least the word love is, is featured in the command or next to the command. So love, a lot of scholars have argued, is the central command that all the rest of the commands, those one-another, sort of explain or expound upon. So first we have to talk about what love in the church looks like at the risk of, once again, being stuck in sort of the vision, big picture world and not the practical. But this really matters. This really matters. And a story that illustrates why this matters is, uh, I could tell numerous. If you've been around the church for a number of years, you've got stories. You've got stories of the church, hopefully, I hope, I pray, of being a balm, of being an encouragement, of being a, a, a lifeline. But you've probably also got stories of the church being a place of wounding, a place of disappointment. Um, about this time last year, just a little bit before, kind of spring through summer, right heading into fall, um, some of you know this, most of you know this at least with a certain amount of clarity, that I was, I was really struggling in our church. And uh, that's not to say there aren't things I struggle with right now about our church and in our church, discouragements that I face or whatever, but this was a no, like probably the most notable season of sort of pastoral discouragement I'd ever had. And it was for a number of reasons, but I'm struck by the fact that a lot of that discouragement and anxiety, lack, I was starting to not sleep well, I was just anxious about what was happening in the community, um, a lot of it just had to do with relationships in the church. People that discouraged me, people that hurt me, 
And I want to be very clear, most of these were not sort of like I was sinned against, uh, I was, anyone had done anything wrong to me, but, you know, one of the things, one of the aspects of this was just a series of people that had been here since the beginning, kind of in the post-COVID kind of reshuffling time, people say, hey, you know what, we're going to move on to a different church for this reason or that. Um, so that's, that's not right or wrong, but it is painful, and it's okay to acknowledge, acknowledge the pain there. And so, for reasons like that and others, this church became a place of like, it felt like for a couple of months, like kind of timidly showing up, like, oh, is something good or helpful or beautiful going to happen, kind of getting hurt again. Again, not to anyone's fault, but it was just, just an anxious, pain-producing time. But it's interesting to note how the very same community, this church, Door of Hope Northeast, was also the means by which God healed that anxiety. Like, so many, like, little moments. Like, I remember, you know, gosh, uh, let's see. Are the Robertsons in here, Josh and Annie? Not this morning. We'll send them a strongly worded email later. <laughs> but I remember it jo in Josh and Annie's backyard, like, processing these things and them just, like, speaking these words of life and encouragement and me just sobbing in front of them over this time with how meaningful, like, their encouragement was to me. Um, I could list other stories. I could think of a time at Luke and Rachel's house where we had a, a prayer gathering where we had just a number of people, close people, like people that we'd been community group with and so forth, uh, just sharing these things and then laying hands on us and praying for us and just those prayers and just hearing the hearts of our friends like for us in this season of discouragement just was one of those moments that you could just the next day feel a tangible lifting up had occurred. And isn't it, I could go on, I could... I could go on for a long time, but we don't have that much time. We need to baptize some people here soon. So um, my point is, isn't it crazy how, if we're honest, the church is both, can be at the same time, the place of our deepest hopes, and sometimes those hopes are met with some of our, the experiences of greatest love and intimacy and friendship and carrying from others that we've ever experienced. And at the same time, it can be the, the place of the greatest disappointment, the greatest hurt, the greatest pain, the greatest burdens. And the thing is, none of this is a surprise to Jesus. None of this is a surprise to the apostles. None of this is a surprise to the other authors of the New Testament. The commands around church and community all assume, this is why they're here, they all assume that there will be gossip that there will be particularly needy people, there will be particularly selfish people, there will be deep conflicts that seem nearly intractable. It's because Jesus knew, the apostles knew, the authors of the New Testament knew, and you know if you're honest, that community takes proximity and intimacy with humans, and that intimacy always involves risk. And that risk, at some point or another, will always involve pain. As Scott McKnight writes, love is a great idea until the one that you're called to love happens to be unlike you. <laughs> love is a great idea until you discover who your neighbors actually are. Love is a great idea until you actually see who attends your church. <laughs> love is a great idea until your kids go ballistic. Oh, this one's tough. Love is a great idea until your house floods because someone left the sink running. Love is a great idea until you actually see who sits next to you at church on Sunday morning. Or think of how C.S. Lewis put it in his book, The Four Loves. To love at all is to be vulnerable. 
Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to be sure to keep your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Today we're going to talk about the life of love in the family of God, in the church. But I don't want it to seem like there's just another thing we talk about from a buffet of things we might talk about. I want you to see that this is the central idea of life in the church the same way the Bible does. To see it, we have to do just a moment of history, very briefly. So if you think about the Bible, the Bible's a big collection of books. Great number of books by numerous authors written over a dramatic span of history, but one way to conceptualize the story of the Bible, not the only way, but one way is to think about it through the covenants that God made with his people. Very briefly, he started with an implied covenant to humanity and the rest of what he's made at creation, which he reaffirmed and made explicit in the Noahic covenant, the covenant he made with Noah, to care for creation and not destroy it. Second, He made the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham to bless him with a large family of descendants and to bless the rest of the world through those descendants. Third, he made a covenant with the newly constituted nation of Israel through Moses called the Mosaic covenant to treasure them, to make them a kingdom of priests, to make them holy, along with the consequences for rejecting the ethical obligations of the covenant. Fourth, he made what we call the Davidic covenant with King David which was a commitment to preserve David's name, David's kingdom, and David's descendants. After David, though, though there were some good kings and some good seasons, the overarching story was one of covenant violation as Israel turned its back on its, you know, commission to be this kingdom of priests, this blessing to the world. And it ultimately resulted in both kingdoms, it was divided into a northern, northern southern kingdom being divided and taken into captivity by Assyria and Babylon. We just talked about the book of Jonah in Assyria a few weeks ago. But during this, here's where it's all going. During this extended period, both before and during the exile, various prophets started speaking. And they said, there's going to be one more covenant. One more covenant. Um, this new covenant was going to be offered to both Jews and Gentiles with a promise to radically transform the hearts of the people. It was going to have a power that none of the other covenants had to actually change the people to be able to live out what God was calling them to. Um, It was going to be to forgive them of their sins once and for all. It was going to be to return the people to safety with God and for God himself to shepherd them closely through a descendant of David. You know where this is going. Following a silent period when no prophets emerged, eventually Jesus, the Son of God, came onto the scene. And he finally brought about the inauguration of, again, this language, the new covenant through his life, death, and resurrection. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, the cup, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. We, the church, are a new covenant people brought into this intimate relationship with God and all the blessings by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we have a new covenant. And one of the markers of life in this new covenant is that there is a new identity, identity as a family. 
Another passage, Mark 10. Peter said to Jesus, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, listen to this, now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, don't forget, don't get too idealistic, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and last will be first. This is Jesus' indication that among his disciples, this is before the cross, but after the new covenant comes through the cross, there's gonna be a new people birthed into a new family, a new family. And this family language became the central, you know, throughout the New Testament way of talking about the relationship between Christians. For us, it's become a cliche, Brothers and sisters, you know, we were like, oh, yeah, yeah, Christian, love you like a brother in Christ is like the ultimate, you know, romantic stiff arm to someone. Uh, (laughs) You you know what I'm talking about. But don't get inoculated to this language. Joseph Hellerman, a professor of New Testament language and literature, we talk about this amazing book, When the Church Was a Family, all the time. But he talks about how the features of the average family in the New Testament world applied to this conception of the church. He points out that through the father's bloodline, the family was everyone's primary relational allegiance and source of identity. You got your identity from your family. And the family came first. People regularly placed the good of their family over their own personal desires and goals. More than that, The closest same-generation bond was between siblings, brothers and sisters, in some ways even closer than marital relationships. The family provided the surest basis for security and stability. Now hear all this, and let me say, this is the image, family, brothers and sisters, that Jesus, that God has chosen for the people he's assembling in this new covenant. And this is extreme, in two ways, to their audience especially, because it challenged everyone's primary allegiance to their biological family. He's, saying, he's never saying, like, family doesn't matter, disrespect, your, of course. Value your family, take care of your family, but your fundamental primary allegiance is not to your blood relations. It's to your spiritual relations found in the church. That was a hard teaching of Jesus in their day, maybe less so in our day. This one might be harder for us, It raises the expected level of love and intimacy and obligation to the spiritual family found in the church. So for us who want to have a casual, distant, non-intimate relationship within the church, this teaching is a scandal. It says, no, 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 no. We are talking about, in Jesus' categories, a family, a family and all that that entails. That when you come into this family, suddenly you have sisters and brothers and mothers and fathers and lands. Your needs will be cared for, relational, physical, by this family. It's a hard word. So we've got a new covenant, a new identity, but here's where we're going. Here's the center of this teaching is that there's a new commandment. It's what Mindy just read for us. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so are you to love one another. By all this, people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 
And it is amazing how dominant this command and its implications are throughout the entire New Testament. Again, the 61 one another commandments are almost universally agreed upon to put flesh and detail upon this command. What does it mean to love one another? Do these things. So, this morning, we're going to briefly break apart this command, try to understand it, and then for the next seven weeks, we dive into how do we do this? May God help us. Let's pray and ask him to. Lord, we need your help desperately because as I myself have proven, unfortunately, it is very easy to talk about these things in an abstract, big picture, detached way. And it is a whole different ballgame, Lord, to live these things out, to strive for obedience to this command to love in flesh and blood ways. So this morning, we pray that you would help us take a first baby step that direction. Help us understand your word faithfully and help us to live it, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first few verses here, verses 31 through 33, give us the background to this command. It says, when he had gone out, that's Judas. Judas had gone out. They'd had their confrontation. Judas left uh, the upper room. Jesus said, now the Son of Man, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God's glorified in him, God will glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, let yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So in a private upper room in Jerusalem, the night Jesus was about to be betrayed, in the same room where the Lord's Supper was shared with the disciples, Moments before this, Jesus had just taken off his outer garments, gotten on his knees, tied a towel around his waist, and washed the feet of each of his disciples. A stunning act of service and love, and a picture of the kind of cleansing that Jesus was about to enact on the cross. Jesus tells them explicitly, in this moment, little children, just a little while I am with you. Yet a little while I am with you. And they're not going to be able to follow him where he's going. But where is he going? He's going to be glorified and to see God glorified in himself. This is almost certainly referring to the whole package of the cross, the resurrection, and then the ascension where Jesus is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. So G here's the point. Here's the point of this background. Jesus is marking out this moment as a significant one. It is their last night together before Jesus is taken from him, from them, first through his arrest, then through his crucifixion, then through his death and burial. And although they would see him again in the resurrected body for over a period of 40 days, he'd finally be taken away again until his final return in glory, which we still wait for. So this kind of marks the exit of Jesus bodily from their lives. So Jesus, Jesus is marking this out. And while we should, Christians should rightly treasure every single word of Jesus, right? For Christians, Christians, we got to treasure his words, none less than any other. But I do think we are meant to feel the additional weightiness of what he's saying here. An additional weight to the things that Jesus did and said in these final moments of preparation for his disciples. The disciples are somewhat clueless about the weight of the moment as they will reveal time and time again. But Jesus knows he's making a final deposit into this initial group from, on which he will advance his message and build his church. These chapters in John are a passing of the torch kind of moment from Jesus to the disciples. It's weighty. So what's my point? What's John's point? What's Jesus' point? 
listen closely, lean in. These words really, 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 really matter. So what are they? Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. Love, what is it? Well, first, what is it not? Uh, we have to clarify, we have to move some of the debris that, that's gathered around this in our culture where the word is trivialized. We have to say love is not a sy synonym for like. Like is important too. It's important to like things. It's important to like people, so on and so forth. It's not the same thing though. Love is not, how we, is not a synonym for like, like how we might love Ken's Artisan Pizza. And I hope that you do like Ken's Artisan Pizza. Love is not social media posturing or virtue signaling, talking about things in a compassionate way without actually putting any skin in the game to address them. Love is not a political slogan. Love is not blind acceptance or a commitment to non-judgmentalism or giving people, you know, that turns into a kind of just giving people over to things that are harmful for them, dishonoring God and ultimately dishonoring that neighbor as well. Love is not an emotion or feeling, something that evaporates when the feeling does. Love is not lust, as it's often equated, a purely erotic, purely sexual thing. Love is not meant to be self-fulfilling, self-fulfillment. Love is not, uh, well, I should say, love is explored constantly in music, literature, TV, film. It's conceptualized as all these things used to describe everything from what you feel about what you ate for breakfast to your most valuable relationships. And in the breadth of all those different possibilities for how to apply that word love, the meaning is lost. The meaning is lost. Merriam-Webster's definitions of love all basically emphasize the ideas of affection, attraction, and attachment. Feelings, essentially, that can come and do come and go as easily as any given mood. So what is love if it's not those things? Love disadvantages oneself. It sacrificially gives of oneself for the true good, well-being, and flourishing of the other. It can and does involve your feelings. It can and does involve many of the things we described but it goes far beyond them into a commitment, into action, even when the feelings fade. That's the biblical type of love. That's the kind of love that God embodies, that Jesus modeled. So that's love, and Jesus says, do it. Do it. Just do it. It's so simple. Just love one another. You might be asking, Jesus says it's a new commandment. How is this new? Because if you know anything about the Bible, you know the Mosaic Covenant already had a similar command to love that Jesus put together as his greatest commandments. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. There you go. Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is not new. It's new, though, because it is the defining command of this new community he's putting together, the new family of God known as the church. And it's new because of the standard of example that Jesus attached to it. What does he say? Love one another just as I have loved you. That's new. 
So we have to ask the question, how has Jesus loved? John himself, or Jesus himself said, just verses earlier in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And it's not just for his friends, the rest of the scriptures declare, it is even for his enemies that he loves and that he commands us to love. Jesus has given everything from the moment of incarnation, that this act of hu humility to take on human flesh, to live in obscurity, to you know, subject himself to all the things that entail human frailty, including the possibility and the reality of death, and not just death, a torturous, humiliation-filled death on a Roman cross. Jesus has given everything, even when we were his enemies. And he's saying in this, and you know, in, when we look at Jesus, we don't just read a definition of love. We see it in the most powerful way imaginable. We see love by the Son of God hanging on a Roman cross saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. We see it and we receive it. We get to experience it. And I assume the majority of us in this room have as we've contemplated and received and trusted the gospel as good news for you, a real person. You have become the recipient of this love. And if you've reflected on that at all, you, you, you just get dumbfounded with the fact that all these blessings the Lord has poured out on you in exchange for nothing. We just simply trust him. We simply throw ourselves at his feet and say, thank you, Jesus, for how you have loved. So that's the command. Jesus goes on to see that there is a result that happens. So love one another just as I have loved you, but verse 35, here's the result. By, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The result of living out this love is that people will recognize Jesus among us. People will recognize Jesus among us. They will see that we are genuinely his disciples because it's very easy to talk about Jesus. It's very easy to uh, do all sorts of things in relationship to Jesus, but do you want to be seen and recognized as his disciple? Then love. There may even be an evangelistic implication here that our love would become the final apologetic in the words of Francis Schaeffer, the thing that makes Christianity comprehensible when they see the love of Jesus enfleshed in real people standing in front of them. Our love for one another is meant to make an invitation outward to others to come and be a part of this. If we have no love here, it's not a very exciting invitation, is it? Oh, come and join just like this kind of screedy, judgmental, like distant keeping group of people. Ah, that doesn't sound that great. Brunch sounds much nicer this Sunday morning. <laughs> but our love for one another is meant to make an invitation to come be a part of this. The community of Jesus, the family that he's saved, is saving and will save, an intimate relationship with Jesus himself that we get to see and taste and touch and experience real in our real embodied lives in the here and now. That's the vision. It's Jesus' vision, at least. My point is we can have all the orthodoxy or right belief in the whole world. Let me be very clear. We should. Like, theological orthodoxy matters. Faithfully honoring the Bible, not 
giving into the temptation to change it when it's out of step with our culture. That is deeply important, and may we never depart from the truth once for all given. But if, it's not, if that orthodoxy, that right belief is not embodied in a community of genuine, genuine love, it will have no hope of being seen as beautiful, good, or true by our neighbors that God loves. And that's a problem. That's a problem because we are His ambassadors. We make His appeal on His behalf. And may we do it in this spirit. So Door of Hope Northeast, may we love, may we, may we all, may all people know that we are Jesus' disciples, that you are Jesus' disciples, that I am Jesus' disciple by our love for one another here in this body, here in this family. Amen? So, vision's nice, but how do we do this? How do we do this? How, how does this sermon not just become an Instagram post? How does this sermon not just become a TikTok video? How does this sermon not just become a little sign that I hang in, in my house somewhere that has no actual bearing on the day-to-day flesh and blood realities of life? That's what the remaining teachings are for. Diving into the specifics of these mutuality commands, these one another commands that put flesh on the actual day-to-day nature of striving to be a community of love as Jesus loved to the glory of God and the love of brother, sister, and even neighbor outside the walls of this church family. Let's keep going. For now, let's pray.